Today's episode is brought to you by Purple Carrot. Purple Carrot is the plant-based subscription meal kit for irresistible meals to fuel your body. Each week, choose from an expansive and delicious menu of dinners, lunches, breakfasts, and snacks. Every box is an opportunity to learn and experience something new. Take Emma's Kitchen, for example. No counter space? They've got easy, no-mess recipes. Only have one measuring cup? Each box comes with fresh, pre-portioned ingredients. Right now, take $30 off your first box by going to purplecarrot.com and entering code POD30 at checkout today. That's POD30 for $30 off your first Purple Carrot box. Purple Carrot, the easiest way to eat more plants. Welcome back to All Alone with Something to Say. This is your host, Emma Newberry, who is sitting down this week with Ing Ru Chen, who is the founder of Praise Shadows Art Gallery in Brookline, Massachusetts. Please sit back, clear your mind of my forlorn single measuring cup hanging on a nail on the wall in my kitchen, and enjoy this week's episode. It seems like you've had your hand in so many different facets of the art world, but from what I've read, this seemed like sort of an unexpected pivot for you. So I was just interested to know why that is. Um, And also just, I'm very inspired by it. So I I just also wanted to know like how you're, how you're doing juggling all of this. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. We can attempt to, um, talk about that you grew up in Brookline right and then switched to New York yeah so I grew up I I moved to Boston when I was five years old I was born in Taipei you know my parents are both in the medical profession and decided to come to Boston for a one-year postdoc so we lived in Brighton Alston the first year and then we were supposed to go back to Taiwan which is why I don't have like an Americanized name you know they mm. were they were not planning on staying I really enjoyed growing up here I felt like I had a, a childhood that allowed me to learn how to you know accumulate street smarts while not being in a huge city when and then I went away to college and I decided to go into the art world. You know, New York was just kind of the natural place to go. Right. My first internship in the arts was at a gallery on Newberry Street. I left that internship that summer deciding that I didn't want to work in the arts. <laughs> <laughs> Funny how internships do that. Yeah. Yes. And I'd actually gotten an internship in New York at Sotheby's, which is like this really amazing program where you know you're fully embedded in a department and they do all these like weekly tours to museums but of course that also was unpaid so I couldn't afford to go live in New York and work for free so I ended up staying in Boston working at this gallery which shall remain unnamed I had like three jobs I worked at a coffee shop I tutored and I like taught music I decided at the end of that internship that like oh my God, if this is working in the art world, I want nothing to do with it. It was so 
uninspiring. I was asked to sit in the front a lot, as a lot of interns are. I mean, I got like picked up by older men, which was always awkward. Uh, yeah. And um, I just felt like also the art there was really kind of randomly selected. So I decided to take one more class in art history that following semester. And I said, if I like it, then I'll continue. But if not, I'm going to switch. So the next class I took was graduate seminar. It was fascist art of World War II, Germany, Italy, and Japan. And finally, it was like this art history class that wasn't about, you know, connoisseurship of art or, you know, looking at art in museums or, or galleries. It was looking at visual culture. Mm-hmm. And it, it just was the most transformative class for me. And so I stayed. And then the following summer, I was able to um, take that Sotheby's internship. After all, I got a full scholarship to college, right? And so I would mm-hmm. like, convince my parents. I was like, can I please <laughs> you know, do this thing? And they were, you know, my parents were amazing. So that job at Sotheby's um, really changed everything for me. I graduated. I was offered a position at Sotheby's London, at Sotheby's New York, and then at the Asia Society Museum in New York, which is what I ultimately ended up going with. And mm-hmm. um, so I never imagined moving back to Boston. You know, as right. a young professional, there was just so much going on in New York. I also took that Asia Society job the same week of 9-11. And oh, wow. so, yeah, and I was in the PR department. At that time, the president of the Asia Society was the former ambassador to Pakistan. So everyone was calling that department to ask about you know, more story resources about Afghanistan, about the Taliban, Mm. about Pakistan. I learned so much. I had a great boss. I'm still really close with those first people I worked with, which I think is incredibly important for a young professional, you know, to have a mentor, to have somebody that helps like kind of guide you in terms of how you want to work as a professional. What is good teamwork? You know, what does it mean to love the thing that you do, but also treat people with respect. Um, I feel like I learned a lot about that during that time. I did feel that, you know, New York was it for me for a long time. Um, And then, you know, fast forward to 2019, I have two kids, I have a husband, Um, we both decided in 2018 to leave our full time jobs and go freelance, which is kind of crazy. But Wow. He did. He, you know, my husband's a writer, so he, he got a book deal and um, that was great. And then for me, it was like, you know, I've gotten to a point in a lot of these positions where like I couldn't really do that much anymore. And I've always been inspired by entrepreneurship. I have always had in the back of my mind business ideas or creative ideas. And I just didn't really know how to go about and do it. I had just left a job of four years at this design company called Tatley that taught me so much about how I felt the art world could pivot for some people. So Tatley is this company based in Brooklyn, and it's founded by a woman named Tina Roth Eisenberg. Um, She's a very well-known design blogger as well. What they did was they licensed artworks from professional artists and designers, and they created temporary tattoos from them. So it was like kind of a kid's product when I first started. And, um, And Tina, who's Swiss, you know, the whole backstory of it is that she founded Tatley when her daughter was really young and you know, they would come home from birthday parties with goodie bags full of these ugly gray tattoos. And, you know, was like, oh, my God, this offends my Swiss aesthetic. 
this. So because she already had this huge design blog called Swiss Miss, she, you know, she was like, I'm just going to create a website and, you know, I'll ask like six artists to design something and we'll print them as tattoos and see what happens. And not long after that, the Tate Modern got wind of it and they called her for a wholesale catalog. She hired me to be the head of partnerships. I had just had my second kid. So he was like 13 months old. I never had a female mentor or boss who had a family. Like even my time at Sotheby's, when I was pregnant with my first child, I was the first one to have a baby in like 20 years in my department. And, yeah. But, you know, like the male VPs and such had multiple children, but the women really didn't. I just didn't feel like in any of these environments that I was working in that I had someone to look up to in terms of someone who could be a parent and be an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. Tina really was that person for me. I was just so inspired by like, first of all, how fun the brand was, but all the potential because I had worked in the art world long enough to know that all that museums want is to make art accessible to the public, you know, because that's their mandate. Their mandate is to educate the public about art. Um, if they're a nonprofit. So I immediately got to work developing partnerships with museums and then, you know, with Christie's and then mm -hmm. you know, we developed a partnership with Art Basel for Miami. And then we went to the White House three times, you know, so it like mm -hmm. grew over these four years to people really like knocking on our door and being like, how can we work with you? But the crux of it is that the artists who were licensed to become Tatley artists, you know, they weren't like sitting in their studios working on artwork for Tatley, right? This is mostly intellectual right. property that they already had. And so they were able to receive passive income. And some Tatley artists were making really good money from this revenue, mm -hmm. from licensing artworks to these silly temporary tattoos, but that were being sold all over the world. And, you know, applied at the White House and, you know, in Miami, like that sort of thing. And I was like, well, why don't fine artists do this more? You know, it just like drove me crazy that it was, there was such a divide between, like, you know, commercial artists versus fine art. And like, if you're a fine artist, you can't sell out. Mm -hmm. be part of that you know industry and, and then at the same time they're also they're also like I can't live in New York anymore because I can't survive <laughs> so right. um, I was just like there has to be there has to be a common ground here and there has to be something that the fine art world can do to help you know make this a more viable economy for you know the majority of artists who are working out there today. there was one way where I was like literally signing the deals you know and literally deciding like how much of a percentage to give to certain artists. And I felt like I felt great being able to be part of that conversation. I was there for four years and I was like, what do I do next? And so I decided to take the leap in 2018 and I started this company called Praise Shadows Art Partners, which was inspired by a lot of the artists that I you know, was working with in New York and beyond and seeing that they really needed additional revenue streams to survive. <laughs> it's It just felt like the fine art world was really limited. Yeah. What artists were able to do. And part of that is like the art world's own kind of myopia and stringent standards of like what an artist is or who an artist is and how they should be like consumed by collectors. And then another was just, uh, you know, 
a lot of galleries were closing in New York. Um, where artists that I knew who were in like well-known biennials were still coming up to me and asking me for help because they were broke. And, mm-hmm. you know, for me, I was like, but you're successful. Everyone, you know, you got a great right. review in the Times or you've been collected in these institutions. But, you know, for a, for a lot of artists, like getting, you know, collected is amazing and having a gallery represent you is amazing. But, you know, for a good number of them, like you might sell a few works a year and there might be years where you don't sell very much at all. So what do you do? Um, I, I started the company in late 2018 and I immediately had like two big clients, you know, basically on retainer. And that was enough for me to kind of like get up and running with it. So all of that was like basically the first year. And as that was happening, you know, on my personal life, my husband and I were like, we don't actually need to live in New York City anymore. As it was kind of evolving, I was like, I have my connections to New York. I know the curators. I know the artists. You know, I know the galleries. But Mm -hmm. we're paying so much money to live here. And um, we really don't need to do that (laughs) anymore. I was looking for, you know, good public school systems for my kids again. and. it was like May 2019, I came back for um, Memorial Day weekend. And, um, and my mom and dad still live in Brookline. And, you know, I was that was it, I was kind of like, I told my husband, I think you're gonna think I'm crazy, but I have this idea. And so that happened. That was like late August, early September 2019. That's basically when um, I started working with Kingston Gallery as well in Boston as mm-hmm. um, media relations director. I was working, you know, between New York and Boston. I would go to New York once a month, and that all ended abruptly in March 2020. Right. You know, that whole spring. I was I was still working with Kingston and that was actually a very intense and good period. You know, I was helping Kingston like pivot to all the online programming. We helped Kingston get on board at Artsy so that, you know, the artworks mm-hmm. could be available online. We started doing these talks and, you know, and then the murder of George Floyd happened. So then there was just a lot of like intense work and you know, critical thinking that um I was doing and I was doing I was helping, you know clients with. And during that whole time, I was kind of like, I was never saying, oh, I'm going to open a gallery. But I was also like, oh, interesting. You know, like, if I guess, you know, if I were to do this, you know, this might be how I would approach it. The thought process was crystallizing. And simultaneously, I had also started these Instagram live talks um, called Praise You, where I was right. doing them like every single day for five weeks, um, starting in April and ending in mid-May like naively thinking that the pandemic would be over and that we can all go back to work. Right. Um, and so I found that also to be extremely informative for me because people that got on these chats with me, you know, were museum directors and curators and artists, but also like writers and musicians and people who ran performing art spaces and and movie directors. And so I just kind of got this like really well-rounded perspective um, of how people creatively were dealing with the pandemic. And then I restarted it again in the summer. I think it was during that time when, you know, the gallery really was kind of starting to form in my head. And at first it was more like, maybe I'll come up with, you know, a temporary nomadic situation, which was like the only thing I could do. I didn't have, you know, I wasn't like setting aside a chunk of money to open a gallery. Um, And so this was like, 
late June, early July, I was um, in the neighborhood that I, you know, I live in and my kids go to school in, which is Coolidge Corner in Brookline. And then I'm like walking back with my daughter one day and um, the space that I'm currently in, I noticed had a for lease sign on the window. So this is like right after the July 1st. And Hmm. I've been a GNC vitamin shop. GNC had just declared bankruptcy at the end of June. And Hmm. so they like just turned in their keys and left all their products on the shelves. Like they didn't. Oh, wow. Had no, you know, they really were not invested in the neighborhood. So I ended up um, getting that landlord's information. And, um, and that was the meeting that transformed everything. What really struck me was how many of the retail shop owners like, you're never going to get a better landlord. That was really validating. From my experience in New York, I've never had a good landlord. Yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, I asked him, I was like, so how much is this? <laughs> and he, he didn't have a number. He was kind of like, oh. it's a pandemic. We can figure this out. Um, so he's been absolutely critical to making this work. And then from then on, it was just kind of like a race to try and get this done. You know, the GNC luckily had um, just been renovated because before that it was a dry cleaner for decades. And so GNC Mm -hmm. put in a lot of money to like um, put in new HVAC systems and electrical. So luckily I didn't have to do that. And um, I have a childhood classmate who, um, who was an architect, his name is Sam Batchelor, and he's a partner at Design Lab Architects and they designed Mm -hmm. um, the Mass Art Museum. So I called him and he immediately agreed to help me. Um, And he introduced Mm. me to the general contractor, Shane Gibbons of Nomad. So Shane is like a trained architect, but is also a GC and has been amazing. And then I pulled in, you know, just the contacts. Like I kind of felt like I had helped so many people in my 20 years of working that I was finally asking them to help me. You right. know, it was kind of the first time I was like, okay, I'm going to put in my chips here. And people were all so obliging. That was kind of the foundation. And then from there, it was more like, all right, you know, looking at the program. And um, from all the times, you know, the years that I spent working with artists, I, I kind of naturally already had a really good substantial group of artists that I already knew I wanted to work with Mm -hmm. and and then that expanded from like you know being in Boston over the last year Um, you know there's just been and I think what this is is essentially like a brain explosion (laughs) you know it was like (laughs) all this stuff that was like just kind of simmering and congealing and um, like working its way through my psyche, but also through like my professional, you know, development, like as I'm thinking about myself on a critical level, like how do I want to represent this? Like, what is my point of view? And that's what I realized. Like, I was like, oh my God, I can finally present my point of view in Mm -hmm. the world. And I also felt like this was such a critical time as you know, the art world is kind of undergoing some major reckoning with museums, with galleries, with, you know, everything, you know, coming from like issues of systemic racism to colonialism to, you know, how the art markets are. I have, I have opinions on all of that. And, you know, I get to finally do something about it. Um, I also get to show artists that I really strongly believe have not been 
represented well enough in the art market over the, you know, over forever. Um, A lot of whom are people of color. And it's not, I'm not doing this because it's like trendy now, you know, or because I feel like I have to, like, I'm literally doing it because these are my friends or these are people I've been advocating for, for a long time. To me, it's just like, there was actually this urgency, you know, and it wasn't false. It has never been false. There are people out there all over the world, all over this country who are looking for art and they're looking for it at like really good prices and they're, but they're looking for certain kinds of artists. And because I'm involved with certain kinds of artists, meaning like contemporary artists, mostly younger, mostly people of color, people who represent a diverse range of, you know, of humanness, um, that's attracting collectors of that same ilk. And what's so amazing about that aspect of this gallery is that like, I think I have one collector so far who is not a person of color. And I feel like that says so much. It just has been very natural for the program so far. Um, and, you know, I'm only like a month and a half in, but like, honestly, it's, it's, it's like walk-ins and people who are buying from around the country, they're, um, they're gravitating towards the program because of this point of view. And I'm mm-hmm. really proud of that. Most of the conversations I've been hearing mm-hmm. that have been more critical of the art world right now are mm-hmm. sort of what you were talking about, like this swooping down from on high to be like, we will make this gesture at yeah. racial equity sort of and do this hashtag and then keep, yeah. you know, doing on an institutional level, keep everything pretty much the same as long as you don't yeah. Yeah. push us on this. Yeah. Even from your earliest days in New York, the idea of finding people both in the industry and people who are trying to make it in the industry who are actually invested in the community. How much do you think the success of Praise Shadows has been because of where you are Mm -hmm. in terms of where you're based and also your connection to the community? And do you think you would have had this same kind of response Mm -hmm. had you been in New York or had you been doing it on a less local level? Um, probably not. And I think that's mm. the reason why I, I mean, look, New York is absolutely more diverse when it comes to the representation of people who own galleries, you know, I mean, it is still very right. much mostly white Caucasian males. Um, but, right. you know, I think compared to Boston, and I don't know, I mean, this is like me thinking anecdotally here, but I do think Boston, you know, it doesn't have, it definitely doesn't have as large of a gallery scene and it's just not as um, diverse. It's just not. When I started telling people I was doing this, some of the earliest, biggest supporters were just like approaching me and saying, hey, let's get on a Zoom or a phone call and like, how can I help you? And these were like big Boston curators as people were leaving New York and these major centers um, due to the pandemic and, you know, going into cities like Boston or, you know, Philly or whatever, like any, any smaller city um, and setting up their careers and their lives because, you know, they didn't want to be in New York anymore. They couldn't. Mm-hmm. Um, it just made me really excited about the prospect of starting to do something here, you know, where I am part of the community. I mean, I hadn't been here in 20 years, but like my family is still here. And now my kids go to the same school I went to, um, Mm. that I could, uh, you know, that I could do something and like actually create 
this in my vision that I felt like was needed in Boston. Like there's so many artists in Boston. So I just, I got excited too, that like there was also the potential to, um, you know, raise a few voices of people that I've come to know in Boston and like whose art I, you know, really admire. All like, I just want to say too, like all of that takes time, right? Like a lot of people have come into mm-hmm. the gallery to say, oh, I'm an artist. I'd like to have a show at your gallery. Like literally it happens like wow, twice a week. Um, I know it's very, it's very mm. interesting. It takes a long time to develop a relationship. There has to be so much, like there has, there has to be like a high level of understanding and respect. And also just like that we have the same goals. The curators that have come through and, you know, admired what they've seen in the space, they will continue to do that because they trust now my point of view. They trust the right. people that, you know, I decide to show. I guess I need people to understand, like, there are reasons for why certain artists um, get shown in museums, even if the work doesn't mm-hmm. look beautiful on your wall. It doesn't mean you have to collect it, but it means that artists is saying something, you know, about our time, about our culture, about where we are today. And that is why, you know, they have cultural resonance and relevance and, um, and why they have, you know, value right now. What I'm trying to do is build the careers of some of these artists that I work with, or all of them that I work with and build their careers so that they have curatorial relationships to museums. Um, And that's another thing that I felt like Boston was very critical for is just the high concentration of museums in this city. Um, And that's why like for, you know, the first talk with Jared, the first person I asked to join him on the talk was Ellen Tani, you know, formerly of the ICA Boston. Mm. She is so smart and she has done, you know, she has been spending her career on this research. Um, and I I think it's really important to connect the artists that I work with to, you know, people who are critical thinkers of this field. Yeah, I think the distinction that you made between there being nuance in the relationship between artists and galleries and artists and collectors mm-hmm. and just in the art world in general, like that, that seems to me very distinct from the kind of gatekeeping sort of thing that you were talking about earlier with like mm-hmm. certain artists just aren't shown at this level, or like, Mm -hmm. even if they're gaining a certain level of critical success, that that hasn't, that isn't actually translating to economic success. I think all of that is operating under, you know, like my life experience as like a woman of color, someone who came into the field with literally no access in terms of, you know, pre-existing relationships, right? Certainly, you know, my first internship at Sotheby's, um, there were mostly daughters of collectors. And, um, you know, that like, that was super eye-opening to me. I didn't come from um, a family that had this vocabulary, that had any of this experience. So um, I am trying to do with for example, the mentorship program is to create a way for, um, you know, a teenager. So it's for 16 to 19 year olds from the Boston area or the greater Boston area. You know, as long as they can get to the gallery to go to work, they can apply. Mm -hmm. But um, I have just had too much of this world where, you know, only the children of the rich and, um, 
the connected have access to these opportunities. And a lot of this is like also based on this entrenched, you know, system of not just the art world, but like also the media world and, and others where you don't get paid for what you do. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, like it's hard for me because like I, I have, you know, I have a small business loan and I have the money that I've taken out of savings. Like this is how I'm doing this gallery. And Mm -hmm. for me to pay, you know, an intern and to pay this mentee, I mean, it's something that I have to put into my budget, but like, I'm willing to do it because I know how in the long run, you know, this is only going to benefit the gallery and the artists that we support and the people who end up you know, supporting the arts. But like the other day at the gallery, we had this young man come in and Haley was talking to him up front and I couldn't help but hear their conversation. And this man was just so, he was so passionate about what he saw, but Mm. didn't have any training, you know? And he was, so then he started telling us the story. He was this young black man, grew up in Chinatown, um, you know, was kind of like in between jobs right now, but he was walking home and he lived in Brighton, Alston. So he like passed by the gallery and he goes, I saw the art on the wall and I just might, I could not not come in. And then, you know, he, he stayed a little while longer. He was like, I definitely want to come back. I'm gonna come back all the time. And there were people looking through the window and he was like, why aren't you coming in? Come inside. <laughs> this. And, um, And then, you know, he, like, we said goodbye and he took off. And I was just thinking, I was like, you know, what if he grew up with the opportunity to work here? I'm not saying that, like, you know, this is, this is one position that I'm able to offer a year. It's, it's not like I'm saving the world at all, at all. It was just like one person. I have seen already, like, how the gallery can make one person feel deeper about something. Just that sort of engagement and with with your local community, I, I am really excited to explore. Like, next month, we have the first solo show in Boston of uh, Duke Riley. He's creating a mosaic specifically to Boston, and then we're going to be premiering um, these beautiful scrimshaws that he actually creates from found plastic. On March 11th, we open a show by Yuri Shimojo, who had a few pieces up at Kingston. Oh, yeah. And Yuri's um, pieces that we're showing are actually older paintings that were done um, in the aftermath of the humongous disaster in Japan in 2011. So this is the nuclear mm-hmm. disaster and earthquake and tsunami in Japan that killed you know, tens of thousands of people. Um, in 2012, Yuri started this body of work called Memento Mori. And they're kind of these mandala type, um, very dense, very beautiful paintings. They've never been shown in the United States. And this is really her most important work ever. So that's Mm. happening March 11th, which is the 10th anniversary of the disaster. So she Mm -hmm. is um, doing a talk on opening day with um, Dr. Jennifer Weisenfeld of Duke University, who's a scholar of Japanese Jennifer Weisenfeld was that professor of fascist art history oh okay wow <laughs> that class with look at that uh, in college so that was kind of like it's gone full circle you know like I I contacted my professor just to say I'm opening this gallery and 
I told her how transformative her class was. We continued this conversation. And then I was like, you know, I think you should meet Yuri, this artist that I work with. And after that is James Clark, who is a light and digital artist uh, who's now based in Tokyo. And I worked with him a lot when I was in New York. So um, he actually has a long-term installation that is in the window of my gallery. So like anyone can see his work anytime, but um, hmm. you'll be able to see beautiful light sculptures um, at the gallery this spring. And um, I could go on and on. And, you know, the artists <laughs> coming up are all fantastic. And then in September, um, Boston artist Yuan Wu is going to have a show hmm. Um, solo show at the gallery. How are you doing with everything? Yeah, thank you for asking. Yeah. I'm doing great. I mean, I couldn't feel more um, fortunate to have this opportunity. I have a place to live. I, you know, have a wonderful family. So all of that is is incredible. And um, I think, you know, the last few years of the Trump presidency has absolutely been mentally exhausting. Um, So I will be honest, like there have been a few times that I just, I've just been like, my brain has a really hard time dealing with like day to day functions of certain things, because, you know, I'm Mm. so stressed out by what's happening with our world. But overall, you know, I know that like, the, the work that I put in being like a friend and a mentor and, you know, a worker over the last 20 years has help me create what I am doing now. That's something that like my husband has said to me a lot before, you know, like you need to ask for things yourself. And um, this was the first time really that I asked for things for myself. And it's been, you know, it's been like the one thing that I would want to ask for um, is to help make this happen. I, I just know that right now, like, Voices like mine need to be heard, and I'm not ashamed to say that. I am not. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of All Alone with Something to Say. Special thanks to Ingru Chen, to Kenny Noel for music, and to Dan Valu for the ads. Have you got something to say? Or are you interested in hearing more about the stickers we have for sale? You can find us on Instagram or Twitter at the All Alone Pod, or you can email us at the All Alone Pod at gmail.com. <laughs>